I am in the middle of a new sermon series that I've entitled, What Do We Believe and Why? What do we believe and why? And the point of this is that I've determined that there's a great deal of biblical illiteracy in the churches, in the churches, church across the globe. And so I hope that we will become more literate, more thoroughly filled with God's will and, and spirit and understand what we stand for. What do we believe and why? And today is part three of that series, and you can go back on the website and get the first two parts. Part three today is Jesus. Jesus, and you could see it in all the music that we sang this morning. Everything that we believe and everything that we stand for and stand on as individuals, as a people, and as a church is defined by Jesus Christ. There is no church without Christ. If Christ didn't come and die on the cross, everything that we are doing is for naught. Uh, and so we need to understand that God had indicated through the Bible for 1,500 years before Christ came to this world that he would come and be sent, and that he would be our Savior and, and our Messiah. And so there is no other name in the universe like Jesus Christ. He represents everything that we believe in. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, as we read these powerful words. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen, church? Let's understand something. Those words will become critically true when Jesus Christ returns the second time. When he comes back, as the Lion of Judah, and plants the cross right there in Jerusalem. Every knee will bow across the world. They will all recognize then. And so these words motivate us and enervate us and teach us as to what we need to understand. Jesus Christ is the most controversial figure who has ever lived. He is loved, adored, and worshipped by billions of people. But he is also hated and despised and rejected by others. So who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? 2,000 years ago, Jesus posed that very question to the Pharisees when he said, what do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? Uh, interestingly, the question perplexed many people during those periods of time, just as it does today. The general public was confused about Jesus. Some thought he was Jeremiah the prophet. Some thought he was Elijah the prophet. Others, including Herod, thought he was the reincarnated John the Baptist, returned from the dead. And so people are confused even today about who Jesus is. 
but I don't want us to be confused. I want us to have a clarity of thought in our minds and in our spirit. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about Jesus? Well, there are many opinions, but it is incumbent upon us to know about the Bible because God did, in fact, claim to be God incarnate. And you need to address that issue when people say, well, Jesus was a good man, he was a good prophet, he did a lot of things, but I don't believe that he was the Son of God. And you need to say, oh, no, he said it over and over and over again that he was the Son of God. Uh, Look at John 14, verse 6, uh, where he said very clearly, he is the only way to God. No man cometh to the Father except through me, period. End of sentence. No man cometh to the Father except through me. If you think that you're going to get to heaven or get to see God other than through Jesus Christ, my friends, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. Now look at the opening words of John chapter 1. Some of the most beautiful words written in Scripture, uh, where we read the following, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has now appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. The very words that created this universe, those words of life were Jesus Christ. Those words became human incarnate and came to this world as a baby. Look, Jesus predates creation. He predates everything. He existed in eternity past, just as he will live forever in the future. Our limited, finite minds cannot grasp this or conceive it or even imagine it, but nonetheless, it is absolutely true, and the Bible tells us this. This is just another way of saying Jesus Christ is God. Before there was a world, before there were planets, before there were stars, before there was light or darkness, before there was any matter at all anywhere in the universe, there was the Godhead and there was Jesus Christ. Understand that. That is your Lord He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 of John chapter 1 says it clearly. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the very word of creation, let there be light. 
Let there be life as the darkness was separated from this universe. That very creative word was Jesus and came to dwell among us. Now that word dwelt used in scripture also means he tabernacled with us. You see, you need to understand that, uh, the word tabernacle. Effectively, he was a deity in diapers, and he grew into a man. He walked in our shoes. He wept with you. He knows your sorrows. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering, and he even died your death. He experienced every possible thing that humanity could experience. And yet, he never ceased being God. He was fully God and fully man. He became human without ceasing to be God. And so, Scripture also makes clear that Jesus himself was the creator of the universe. Can you imagine the God that hung on the cross for you, created the entire universe, that he would submit himself and humble himself so that you could be saved? This is an incredible thought, really. Uh, In John chapter 1, verse 10, we are told that he was in the world and the world was made through him. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Understand how mighty and great that verse is. He created everything, everything that you see, the entire universe, this world, everything created by Christ Jesus. And now the very molecular particles that keeps this universe together, the interstitial forces that bind the molecules together. He is that force. The world doesn't understand it. Without Jesus, it would all come about and come apart. Jesus was and is God in every way. And now we also know that the Lord chose that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, as the prophecies declared. The Bible is very clear about that, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And you see, this is an incredible stumbling block for many people, certainly for the Jews who could never get their arms around it. How could it be? How could the Messiah be born uh, of a virgin? Well, the truth is, the very truth is that he was supernaturally conceived in the womb of a woman that never knew a man. People through the years have struggled with defining this miracle, but you need to accept it as a fact because it makes absolute sense. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe in the virgin birth. Uh, There's no other way around it. If Jesus were not supernaturally conceived in the womb of a virgin, then he was not God. He would have been plainly man. And if he were not God, then his death on the cross would be a meaningless experience. 
uh, and of no great significance. There was only one man who died on the cross, who was God in human form, atoning for the sin of the world, and then bodily raised from the grave, and then seen for 40 days by 500 eyewitnesses. That is your Messiah. Now, the Lord's virgin birth was a claim, you see, to his deity. The virgin birth makes total sense if you think about it. Absolutely. He was totally conceived in the womb of a human mother, uh, but he did not inherit her sinful nature because God was his father. That is how he could be the perfect sacrifice, sinless in every way, coming from his father. Christ was God. Christ was God, not because he was virgin born. Rather, he was virgin born because he was God. I'll never forget that. And there was never a moment, you understand, when Jesus became God. He was always God. He was God before he was born. He was God before he came to this world. And he remained God even after he became a man. He was always God, even as a tiny fetus in the womb of Mary. And so the question becomes for many of us, well, how much did Jesus know uh, as a baby about what his mission was in this world? Did the baby know all things? No, I don't believe the baby knew all things. But the scripture tells us that as time went by, Jesus matured. And as Jesus matured, God poured more of his mission into his life. In Luke, we are told, quote, and Jesus matured, growing up in both body and spirit, blessed by both God and people. Most probably as a child, you see, Jesus possessed divine attributes without really using them. Uh, when he became a man, he emptied himself of the uh, perquisites of being God. He took the form of a bondservant uh, that says this in Philippians chapter 2, which says, when he became a man, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Can you imagine God emptying himself of the Godhead so that he could become more like us and experience what we experience uh, in order to be our savior. Effectively, he humbled himself. He showed us that that's the nature of what we are expected to be as Christians. When, Christians, when the scripture says he emptied himself, uh, effectively, it does not mean that he laid his deity aside. Rather, it means he laid the privileges, the privileges of deity aside. And so Jesus went through a learning process growing up and maturing. When Luke 2, 52 says he increased in wisdom and stature, it literally means that he kept on advancing. Because Jesus was truly a man enduring heat and cold, hunger and thirst, grief, weariness, laughter, and tears like any one of us in this world. You see, the Bible tells us and we believe that Jesus feels our needs. 
Jesus sympathizes with us. Jesus today, sitting at the right hand of God, knows every single thing you're feeling. And when you lose a loved one, I want you to remember that the shortest verse in the Bible, possibly one of the most powerful in two words, says, Jesus wept. That is your Jesus, all right? He weeps. He weeps for you. He suffers for you. He knows the pain that you're going through. And look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we professed. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When you get on your knees and seek the Lord, you need to understand he walked in your shoes. He died the death that your loved ones died, and you will someday die. He's experienced all the suffering and grief that you have, and he sits there next to God the Father praying for you. That is your God. And when you reflect on the fact that he's experienced all this, and yet he's praying there, the Bible tells us, he's praying there now for you. He's there praying for you so that you can go and receive mercy and grace knowing that God and Jesus Christ is there praying for you. That's where you find grace in your time of need. This is what we have as Christians. This is what Jesus has brought to us. It had to be amazing, you see, for the apostles to walk with Christ for three years. Can you imagine what that had to be like, to walk with God himself for three years in this world. They saw God in human form. People today often reflect on what their impression is of what Jesus looked like. What did he look like? Well, you know, if you look in the movies, especially some of those movies in the 50s, Jesus appears with light brown hair, blue eyes, tall, extraordinarily handsome, right? They go and get the most incredible actors to take us. Yet the Bible says that Jesus had no physical beauty. He was not strikingly handsome. Uh, he, He had no beauty or majesty to attract himself to people. Uh, through his physical appearance. His appearance was ordinary in every way. Many times he could walk through a crowd without being noticed. In fact, when Judas betrayed him and brought those hundreds of temple soldiers to Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, what did he say? He is the one on whom I will plant a kiss. Think about it. Jesus was not recognized unless Judas did that. Uh, And so since Jesus was Jewish, uh, it is doubtful that he had blonde hair or blue eyes or light-colored skin and hair. All of that most likely would have been dark. The truth is that Jesus looked just like your average man on the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, He did not have a halo. 
I know if you look at some of the medieval paintings, you're going to be confused about that. But he did not walk around with a halo. When Jesus needed to get from point A to point B, he was not transported spiritually. He walked just the way you walk. He walked until he was probably exhausted, physically exhausted. And he experienced physical hunger. The account of his temptation in the wilderness is so profound as he went for 40 days and 40 nights without food and without water, and you come to see him in that that terrible state, and then Satan comes to tempt him, which is what Satan does to us. He waits for you to be weak, till you be down on your knees and suffering, and he comes to you just like he came to Christ. And so when Satan tempted him, when Jesus hadn't eaten, and said to him, you can turn that rock into a piece of bread, which of course he could have done. He refused to do that because Jesus never performed a miracle for himself, for his own benefit. He also experienced physical thirst. We know that. When he hung on the cross, dying, he said, I thirst. And yet they gave him vinegar. They didn't give him water. Uh, And so Jesus set aside himself, humbled himself in every possible way, put all the privileges of deity aside so that he could come and be your savior. Now, I think you could also say that Jesus was a man's man. He experienced physical weakness. He experienced suffering. He was not weak and scrawny. Get that out of your head. Our Jesus was not weak and scrawny. He'd been raised by Joseph, his earthly father, and he worked as a carpenter and mason. He worked hard every day, and when he was forced to carry his own cross after experiencing 39 whips by the Romans, he was still able to pick up that incredible cross weighing hundreds of pounds and carry it until he stumbled. And many people died just from the whippings. But Jesus carried on and carried the cross. He bled real blood, uh, and he experienced real human agony, and finally died like a man. Jesus also knew anger, but it was righteous anger. It's not the kind of anger you have as you drive around Naples. (laughs) I know you. I've heard about you. Luckily, my, my voice isn't being taped in my car. But Jesus was not angry like that. You see, Jesus' anger was pointed at righteous anger. For what he saw was, was God's will being uh, wrecked. He saw what they were doing in the temple. He had righteous indignation. Uh, and we see that on the display in the Gospels as he comes face to face with the Pharisees. And we see it at the temple when he comes face to face with the money changers who are taking advantage of the people instead of praying for the people. He was angry with the religious elite who continually misrepresented God to the people. That's why Jesus was angry. At the same time, he was tender and approachable. And lovable, so much so that the little children would run up to him and sit on his lap and play at his feet. That is your Jesus. And Jesus felt sorrow too, deep, wrenching 
sorrow at the tomb of his personal friend, Lazarus. He wept. He wept because he recognized what death had brought to his creation. He had created this world. He had created men and women not to experience death, but Satan had interposed his will and sin had entered the human DNA and now man would be destined to die. And Jesus saw that at the tomb of Lazarus. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he also knew that Lazarus would die again. And as he looked around and saw the friends and family there, he knew that they would all die. They would all suffer because of sin, because of sin. And he knew that death had never been a part of God's plan for this world. And so Jesus understands your sorrow. He knows and feels whatever you are feeling. He knows what you are going through. And I want you to read the words found in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 3. And here this great scripture is written 700 years before Christ was be born. And look what the prophetic words of God said about our Savior to come. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Oh, dear Father, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at the language here, prophetically speaking about Christ. Uh, and in verse 5, so profound. He would be pierced for our transgressions. You understand? Pierced, nail wounds. He was crushed for our iniquities on the cross. The very punishment that he suffered would effectively come and bring us peace because by his wounds, we are healed. Church, never forget that. The very wounds that Christ suffered were the very wounds that have healed you and given you eternal life. Look, he took all of your sins away. Only one man in the history of the universe could do that. It wasn't just your sins that weighed him down. It was your sorrows and grief as well. He felt them all. He knew what you would go through. Jesus truly feels your pain and understands your sorrow. And I want you to know that because I know so many of you right now in this church are hurting and you're going through grief and you're going through suffering. And I know we may come around you and surround you and love you, but you need to know that Christ understands your pain. He feels your pain. He's there for you. Uh, and so we know in the book of Hebrews, we are told that Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus says to us, I know why you hurt like that. I have been there as well. That's your God. No other religion has a God like that. 
that can talk like that and can feel like that. That is why Jesus is so wonderful. When we talk to Jesus, we are talking to a God who has walked in our shoes, breathing our air, lived as we have lived, died our very death, and is now preparing a place for you in heaven with the Father. One of the most remarkable things, uh, teachings in the scripture, is that Christ is not only with us, but that he actually comes and makes his home in the human heart. Can you imagine that? He's not only walking with you, but he's with you. He's in your heart. Jesus said in John 14, verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. We will come to them. And we will make our home with them. In your heart. In your life. Every day of your life. And so as Jesus neared the end of his earthly ministry, questions about his identity reached a climax. Especially so with his disciples. And look at Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to a region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. There was still confusion about who Christ was. Everyone agreed that Jesus was someone special. Everyone agreed that he had created great miracles. And they all had their own theories about who he was. John the baptizer coming back from the dead, an ancient prophet returning uh, from the revival of Israel. As the theories abounded, only a very few thought of Jesus as the Messiah. Eventually, when Jesus had the time alone with his disciples, he asked them again, uh, and he put them on the spot. Uh, and so he made them make a decision. And you look at, if you look at Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And I would say Jesus is here right now pointing at you. Who do you say that I am? The group probably stammered and squirmed before Peter blurted out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, it is no different today, as this question must still be answered by humanity. Many try to take what they consider to be an intellectually balanced position. They readily accept that Jesus existed, that he was a historical figure, that he was a Galilean Jew, that he lived and taught during the first century that his teachings were both radical and influential, but they deny the miracles and reject even the suggestion that he was a deity. Unfortunately, this view of Jesus fails to explain why so many people were willing to follow him even to a martyr's death and why he continues to impact the world today in an even greater way than men like Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus, and Constantine, men who impacted the lives of millions of people and stretches of the known world. Think of Plato and Newton 
and Einstein, men who revolutionized human thinking. Uh, think of all the musicians and composers, philosophers, builders, and writers, and leaders who impacted the world so positively. Yes, other men may have made incredible contributions to this world, but none has impacted the world more profoundly, more permanently for billions of people, more personally than that carpenter from Nazareth. Divorce him from the supernatural, and we are left with a history that makes less sense and not more. Apart from the supernatural aspect of life with Christ, uh, Jesus was quite an ordinary man. Is it any wonder that people in Jesus' day, even his own disciples, struggle to comprehend who he was? What an incredible thought. God becoming a man. Paul wrote so eloquently in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in human form. Before Jesus became a man, he was the word by which the utterance, let there be light, resulted in the existence of light. He created the world long centuries before entering it as a baby in a stable just outside a little hamlet called Bethlehem. Look at the prophecies in the scriptures going back 1,500 years that prophesied his birth, his death, his crucifixion, even the very date that he would walk into Jerusalem on his final time there. It's all written and clearly detailed in the scriptures, and yet the Jews refuse to believe. Oh, God. Oh, God, give us grace. This is your Jesus. This message is meant so that you can leave here today and present this message and picture of Jesus to a lost world. He wants to come and make his home with you. He does not just want to stop by as a house guest, all right, to pay you a visit. That's not how Christ is. He's not interested in paying you a visit. He wants to move in. He wants to take up residence in your life. He wants to indwell you and transform you and change you forever. He wants you to know that no matter what happens in the dark passageways of life in this world, that he walks with you, you will never be alone. God is with us. He is with us now. He is with us tomorrow, and he will be with us forever. Once you accept him and take him into your heart, your past becomes irrelevant. God doesn't care what you did yesterday. It's all wiped away because Jesus paid for it on the cross. Whether you had a failed marriage or your children have forgotten you or you have lost a loved one, God is with you today. If you have faith in Christ, God is with you now. This is the ultimate truth. Folks, let me make it as clear as possible. Make a decision today. If you've come to this church and have never made a decision, today is your date of decision. 
I want you to make that decision today to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we will have people up here after this service who will pray with you and instruct you and bring you along because it's very simple. You don't have to study Theology 101. You don't have to swear on a book of Bibles. All you have to say is, Lord, I am lost. Father, I need a Savior. Come into my heart and lead me and take over my life. I believe that you are God. That's it. Those are the words, the free gift. And when you do that, when you do that, he will be with you forever. And so I encourage you today, don't let another day go by. C.S. Lewis, that great philosopher and theologian, summed it up beautifully when he said, quote, the son of God became a man that men might become sons of God. Amen, church? Let's bow our head. Father, I thank you for this picture of our Lord. I thank you for his life. I thank you for what you've created and given us. Lord, I ask you that those who have not made this commitment today be inspired to make it. Let them step forward. Let them become, Lord, part of the sons of God. We walk with you, Father. We embrace you. We take you into our lives. We ask you to use us in the most powerful way to go out and affect change in a lost world. Let our people do this in the most powerful way as this message will resonate with us throughout this week and the weeks to come. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.